But every now and then it occurs to me, it occurs to me that when I stand up in front of that young man and that young lady and I say those words, by the power invested into me as a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in the great state of Pennsylvania, I now pronounce you husband and wife. It occurs to me every now and then that when I say those words, I am creating space in the mind and the heart of that man and that woman for what may be some of the most painful experiences of their lives. It's true in any marriage, isn't it? Uh, this is how marriage works. You, you promise in front of all those witnesses to love for a lifetime, and without doubt, making that promise to an imperfect person means that it's going to be painful at times. It's going to be hard and discouraging. Isn't that the way it is with all relationships? The closer you are to someone, the greater their capacity to bring you joy and the greater capacity they have to hurt you. Uh, think with me for a minute this morning uh, about the pain that comes from infidelity. It's the ultimate act of betrayal, of treachery. Stories of adultery, you hear them all the time. You remember John Edwards. John Edwards is a senator from North Carolina. In 2008, he was one of the leading contenders to be uh, president of the United States. He withdrew from the Democratic primary. Uh, and uh, about the time, within a few months, around that time, his wife was diagnosed with cancer. And the news came out, too, that he had fathered a child with one of his campaign staff members. Um, we use the word affair. The Bible never uses the word affair. Affair is a terribly flat word. Well, listen to what Elizabeth Edwards said about that. She wrote, After I cried and screamed, I went into the bathroom and threw up. And the next day, John and I spoke. He wasn't coy, but it turned out he wasn't forthright either. I felt the ground underneath me had been pulled away. I spent months learning to live with a single incidence of infidelity. And I would like to say that a single incidence is easy to overcome, but it is not. I am who I am. I am imperfect in a million ways, but I always thought that I was the kind of woman, the kind of wife to whom a husband would be faithful. I had asked for fidelity, begged for it, really, when we married. I never need flowers or jewelry. I don't care about vacations or a nice car, but I need you to be faithful. Leave me if you must, but be faithful to me if you are with me. Now, if you can understand or if you can enter into a few moments what this experience might be like, you are ready to join me in the next few months reading and studying the Old Testament prophecy of Hosea. If you've not already done so, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Hosea with me. In fact, that would be my great pleasure for you to turn with me there to the book of Hosea, this wonderful prophecy in the Hebrew Scriptures. We already heard a reading from it this morning, and today we're going to look at it. And as is our custom when we're starting a new book, this is the introduction to Hosea, as is our custom, we're going to spend some time today on some introductory matters. This is going to be a little bit more of a Bible lecture than a sermon. Uh, I want you to set this context, I want to set this book in its context in the Bible as we come to it, and, and, and I want to help you so that we can read it together and maybe you can study it by yourself even more effectively. Um, I have to confess to you this morning, uh, I don't think I have ever heard a sermon from the book of Hosea. Certainly I've never heard a series of sermons 
from the book of Hosea. Maybe that's your experience too. Um, Hosea is one of the twelve. That's what uh, ancient Jews called these last twelve books of the Hebrew Scriptures. They're the twelve. We call them more often the minor prophets. The reason that we call them the minor prophets is not because of the lack of importance of their message, but because of their size. And the ancient Jews, when they would copy these books on scrolls, could fit all 12 of these books on one scroll, and it was together that one scroll called the Twelve. Um, I I don't think it was here, but many years ago I heard a children's choir uh, would sing about the Twelve as the minor leagues. They were the Twelve players of the minor leagues. Well, not, not quite. Now, what distinguishes Hosea from the rest of the book is that at the beginning of the book of Hosea, the rest of the 12, rather, at the beginning of Hosea is a story. It's a story of a marriage, a marriage that is ravaged by adultery. That experience shapes Hosea as a prophet, and it shapes his ministry to Israel as well. Hosea's life is a story of physical infidelity, and Hosea is a prophecy about spiritual infidelity, spiritual adultery. Now, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk about four different things. We're going to talk about the historical context of the book, and then we're going to talk about the author, and then uh, who is Hosea, what do we know about him? Then third, we're going to talk about the book itself, how it's put together. And then finally, we're going to talk about a few major themes that emerge from the book of Hosea, things that we're going to look for and hear repeatedly over the next few months as we look at this book. Now, let's start with Hosea and how it fits into the storyline of the Bible. Hosea begins like the prophets do by by identifying his family a little bit and the time era in which he prophesied. So look at Hosea 1 verse 1. Here's what the text says. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beari, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. So we begin, as we often do in the Old Testament, with these unfamiliar names and these slightly familiar places. Oh, I'm going to ask you to do something I've asked you to do before, but it's been a while. It would be good to look at a map for a few minutes. Do you have a map in your Bible? I hope you do. If you don't have a map in the Bible, you know what to do, right? Go sell that one and get one with maps, okay? I want you to turn in the back to maps in the back of your Bible, and I want you to find one that's labeled somehow kingdoms. Maybe you have one that says the kingdom of David and Solomon. Uh, Maybe you have one uh, that says divided kingdoms. One of my Bibles does. Maybe uh, you just have one that says promised land. So find something that looks like that in the back of your Bible. Now, if you don't have maps in the back of your Bible, take the Pew Bible out and you can use that. And in the front of the Pew Bible, just before the book of Genesis, there's maps. There's a map of the promised land. So we're going to look at that, and I want you, I'm going to tell you a story, a story I've told you before, but you should hear it again and again. It's helpful um, to remember. So I've used the phrase promised land, a promised land a few times. Now, why? The promised land, of course, is modern Israel, modern Lebanon, and modern Syria. But the Bible uses the term promised land. Of course, who was it promised to? It was promised to Abraham. It was part of the land that God promised Abraham. After God created the world, after the flood, after the Tower of Babel, God calls this one man, Abraham, and he promises him this land, and he also promises to him that he's going to be a blessing to the whole wide world. While he promises before that, he's going to bless him. I'm going to bless you, Abraham, 
and you're going to bless the whole world. Your family is going to be a blessing to the world. And of course, it's through this family, through Abraham's family, that Jesus comes. Imagine this. This is a promise God made. It lasts 2,000 plus years. Because Abraham lived about 2,000 B.C. For generations and generations, these people, the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, held on to this promise. We're God's people, and through us, God's going to bless the whole world. Now, you know the story, probably in Genesis, uh, God moves uh, Abraham into the promised land. At the end of Genesis, his descendants come, and they move down into Egypt. God rescues them from slavery in Egypt. That's in the story of the book of Exodus. You should remember that because Hosea remembers that. Do you remember what Christina read from Hosea 11? What does Hosea Hosea say? God says, out of Egypt I have called my son. Hosea knows this story, so we'll, we'll remember this story and come back to it too. Now that rescue that God did from Egypt of the Israelites took place about 1500 B.C., about 500 years after Abraham. And God gave the people the law. They struggled to submit to him. They wandered in the wilderness. Finally, the book of Joshua tells us they went in, conquered the land. And they were ruled by judges for a little bit, these temporary deliverers. The story is dark. Most of that story is dark. And Hosea knows that. He makes many references to uh, Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Hosea knows this story really well. Now in the book of Samuel and Kings, we finally come to the era where there's kings sitting on the throne. Saul to begin, David next, then Solomon. And after Solomon, there was a split. Uh, they split north and south. There was Israel in the north. They got to keep the name, right? These are God's people, the Israelites. The northerners got to keep the name. In the south, their name, they're known as Judah. I can imagine someday, it's not going to be too far in the future, when school children will be studying modern history and they'll, they'll talk about the United States and the wars that we fought in Iraq and they'll confuse the wars and the two George Bushes, right? They'll wonder, which, who, what, why did we start this war? Who was president? What was going on? Well... We're sometimes inclined to confuse the Israels. So there's a split, and Israel is the nation in the north, and uh, Judah is the nation in the south. If you don't have a line dividing that in your map, if you find Jerusalem and you find the city of Bethel, Bethel will be just a little bit north of it, if you draw a horizontal line between Jerusalem and Bethel, that's the dividing line about between the north and the south. It's somewhere around there. Now, Israel was in the north, and it was generally wealthier, it was generally more powerful, it was generally, uh, and also it was a spiritually broken people. Judah was in the south. Judah was ruled by the descendants of King David. It had the temple. It was generally uh, more faithful, uh, but also weaker and poorer. Now, we have the writings in the Bible of two prophets that God sent to the north, Amos and Hosea. Those are the two prophets who prophesied to the nation of Israel. Most of the others spoke to the south. In fact, uh, the prophets of Judah were Isaiah, Micah, Jeremiah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. So Israel was financially rich, but spiritually poor. Judah was uh, often the opposite. Here, Here we go. You can say that Israel in the north had the prophets, P R O F I T S. And Judah in the south had the prophets, P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S. Well, 
I don't know. Now, in Hosea 1.1, he tells us the time during which he served, right? He mentioned these kings, and he's giving us an idea of when he lived. Now, the kings that he mentions, all of them, he mentions kings of the south and one king of the north. Uh, the reign of, the, of all of those kings, if we were to line them up, is a long period of time, about 100 years. Uh, probably Hosea started reigning during the end of the first of those kings and he stopped at the beginning of the last king that's mentioned there. But still, a long period of time. Hosea served for probably 50 years at least, maybe 70, maybe as many as 80 years. God did not send a lot of prophets to Israel, but the ones who went stayed there a long time. They were there. And he sent them at a very crucial period of time. I want you to look at the map one more time before we leave it aside. Do you see here the nation of Israel? Look to the north uh, east of the nation of Israel. You'll find Syria and its capital Damascus. You see that? Syria and Damascus. And then a little bit farther north of Syria, you see Assyria. Assyria. Not Syria, but Assyria. Okay? Have that in mind. Keep those in mind. And now we're done with the map, and I want you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 14. 2 Kings chapter 14. I did not list the page number, but I looked it up before I came up here. It's on page, if you're using a pew Bible, 378. 378 is 2 Kings chapter 14. Here are the kings the period of kings that Hosea mentions. So Hosea is living through this. He's witnessing everything I'm describing here. And we start in 2 Kings 14:23 with the description of Jeroboam II, the only king of Israel he mentions. 2 Kings 14:23. Listen to what it says. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, it's the capital of Israel, and he reigned for 41 years, a long time, 790 B.C. to 750 B.C. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. So this is the second Jeroboam. He was just like the first Jeroboam. Neither of them a credit to their people. Except, ah, he was the one, verse 25, who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamat to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hefer. And that is Jonah, the Jonah you're thinking of, the whale Jonah. Verse 26, the Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering. There was no one to help them. And since the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. These are unfaithful people, but they're unfaithful, suffering people that God loves, and he still rescues them. Verse 28, as for the other events of Jeroboam's reign, all he did in his military achievements, including how he recovered for Israel both Damascus, ah, remember the capital of Syria? He's invaded Syria and taken that city. And Hamat, which had belonged to Judah. Are they not written in the books of the annals of the kings of Israel? Jeroboam rested with his ancestors, the kings of Israel, and Zechariah, his son, not the prophet, Zechariah, his son, succeeded him as king. So see what the text says. There's no spiritual fruit here, but military conquests, recaptured cities, um, uh, prosperity in the nation. There were still problems, though. Um, we're going to find Hosea describes for us a period of increasing hostility between the classes. The rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. 
uh, that's what's happening uh, during Jeroboam's reign. It's interesting to me, the Bible, the kings of Israel were very successful militarily. Um, that's what we think about when we talk about world history, we think about military conquests. The, the Bible doesn't give much attention, but a, a little bit here. Now, after Jeroboam died, there were six more kings who ruled in Israel. Hosea didn't mention any of them. I don't know why Hosea doesn't mention any of them. He lived during their reigns. Um, maybe he didn't mention them because they, they were pretenders to the throne. Let me tell you the story and you'll understand. So, Jeroboam's son, Zechariah, becomes king. He, was, uh, he reigned for a little bit of time and then he was assassinated by Shalom. Uh, Shalom ruled for one month, and then he was assassinated by Menahem. It's not a very good, stable period of time. A lot of assassinations going on. Now, Menahem's great accomplishment in life, the only thing he ever did, was he sent a lot of money to the nation of Assyria, so Assyria, which was rising in power, would recognize that he has the right to rule as as king. Menahem's son, Pekahiah, (laughs) ruled for two, two years. He was on the throne. Then he was assassinated by a military advisor named Pekah, who became king. Uh, Pekah is mentioned in Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. Uh, Pekah tried to lead a revolt against the Assyrians. Uh, that was squashed, and so he was assassinated by Hoshea. Oh, now, Hoshea saved his kingdom by immediately making peace with the Assyrians and at the same time trying to make a deal with the Egyptians, the other power in the region. So Hoshea's playing both powers. He's trying to at least placate the Assyrians and make friends of the Egyptians. Well, the Assyrians heard about this and invaded and took Hoshea from the the throne. And in 722, they destroyed the nation of Israel. At the end, nobody lived happily ever after. So Jeroboam rules for 40 years, military conquests, uh, some financial prosperity, and after him there's this long period of time, 30 years, six kings, assassinations, political chaos, things are falling apart, and Hosea is there to witness it all and see it and, and testify. Actually, there's a, why don't you turn with me to Hosea. Uh, I'm going to read this verse. We're going to go back to Hosea. We'll be in Hosea for the rest of the time. But let me read this verse. Hosea makes this reference to um, the, what's going on during Hoshea's reign. Hosea, uh, Hosea 7.11 says, Ephraim's like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, now turning to Assyria. It's just this foolishness of this uh, instability. And Hosea saw it all. He saw, Jerusalem, uh, he saw Samaria be destroyed. He saw the nation of Israel um, be taken off into captivity. He wasn't. Some people think that in 722 when, when the Assyrians invaded that Hosea fled to Jerusalem. And it was there that he wrote his book and maybe it was, it was saved for us in Jerusalem. He saw all this happening. He started prophesying during a period of what some scholars have described as the Indian summer of Israel. It's, it's unexpectedly warm and peaceful, but winter is coming hard and fast. That's where Hosea served. One of the major emphasis of the book of Hosea is, um, as Hosea is speaking to them, the Israelites watch their nation falling apart, but they can't figure out why things are falling apart. what's worse is they never ever made any sort of connection between their rejection of God and their troubles. 
Hosea the prophet is here to say, I know why you're suffering. You have turned from the God who called you, who created you, who's made a covenant with you. You don't see that. You don't understand it. The nation is falling apart, but they, they would not submit. They never understood that, that it's their, their rebellion against God that is causing all these troubles, which seems to me to be a sign of great stupidity, foolishness. Do you ever read the comic strip Pearls Before Swine? A couple of weeks ago, there was a, a, a feature in the Sunday paper, and uh, Stefan Pastis uh, drew a rat on the phone. It's a rat on the phone sitting in front of his computer, and he's talking to customer service. And the rat says to customer service, I just updated my software, and my computer's not working at all. And customer service says, is it plugged in? And the rat says, what do you mean? Do you think I'm an idiot? I've been waiting on hold for you for 40 minutes, and that's the kind of question you ask me? Is the computer plugged in? What kind of moron do you think that I am? Customer service says, well, I'm sorry, sir, but this is protocol we have to follow. Whenever anybody calls us, the first question we have to ask. He says, well, I'll tell you my protocol. I'm never calling you again. He hangs up the phone. As he's walking away from his desk, he looks down, and there he sees his computer unplugged. Right? Can't you see, how can you miss this, Israel? Don't you understand what the problem is? It is your disconnect from God. How can you miss this? It's so basic and so obvious. How can they not see that their troubles might have something to do with the fact that they have turned from God? Not even figuring Him into an equation as a possible ingredient to the troubles that they're having. Well, that's not very unfamiliar to us, is it? Don't we live in a world where suggesting that the problem might be a disconnect from God is unwelcome counsel? Isn't it, pro- isn't it uh, uh, likely that the, at, at the root of the problem in our inner cities, in our society, has something to do with the fact that God is not acknowledged there as the king of the universe? So maybe something, this maybe has something to do with uh, why our political parties are in such a mess. Um, why, what's, what's broken in the school systems as, the, as they're broken. Hmm. It's only in a fallen world, actually, that you need to ask that question. Um, in the world that God made, as he originally made it, the God-centeredness of everything was obvious. Every Every good gift was a testimony to God's power and wisdom and goodness. There was beauty everywhere and everything pointed to God. Every action was a glad response to his supremacy. The world was filled with the knowledge of God like the world is filled with oxygen. You just breathe this. Adam and Eve in the garden knew all about God's goodness everywhere. Their lives just revolved around him. But that's not the way it is now. It's a sign of our fallenness our disconnect from God. We don't heed what he has said, even more than just disobeying him, is that we have lost this sense of wonder at his evident wisdom and his amazing power. There's no awe in our world. I wonder what it's like, what it was like for Adam and Eve out of, out of the garden. They had these memories of what life was like and how good it was, and how filled with life, and how God-centered it was. You wondered, I, I wonder as, as they lived, 
a long time after that, if the memories of that started to fade. If it's like maybe it's a tragic story to imagine, but a, a little child, three or four years old, when they lose one of their parents, when they're, they're 25 and they're thinking back on it, and they think, do I, do I really remember mom or, or am I just making up stories based on the pictures that I've seen? How, how real are the memories that I have? What was it like for Adam and Eve when the whole world was so God-centered and they knew it and they loved it and it was satisfying and full and now outside of the garden? Does the memory fade? God's the great reality of the universe. John Owen says that one of our great challenges in life today is that even now, even we have the gospel, we have the Bible, we still see through a glass darkly, Paul says. Oh, we're waiting that day, aren't we brothers and sisters, when Jesus Christ returns and every eye will see him and his supremacy will be clear to us all. And it will be impossible to forget. Now, that's the world in which Hosea lived. Let's talk about Hosea the prophet for a few minutes, shall we? We don't know Hosea. Uh, we don't know very much about Hosea. The, the text says that he is the son of Beeri. Um, he was a prophet for a long, long time. So we imagine that maybe he started his ministry when he was young. Um, perhaps, perhaps the first word that God spoke to him was this command that he had to go and get married. So maybe he was even a single young man when, when his prophecy began. One of the things we do know is that Hosea had a very sharp knowledge of the Bible. Um, he's soaked in Genesis and Exodus and Deuteronomy. And I don't know where Hosea got that knowledge because Hosea did not grow up in a country that cared about the Bible. So where did Hosea get all this? Quite a remarkable person. He had a lot of literary skill too. His books put together very skillfully. We don't know much about Hosea other than this command that he was given by God to marry a woman he knew would be unfaithful to him. Well, let's get out of the way. Her name was Gomer. Gomer. Oh, Gomer. Of all the unfortunately named people in the Bible, here this dear woman named Gomer. Can you imagine this? We're going to talk about this more next week, but think about how you would feel if you're standing... I know things were different. The culture was different. It wouldn't be exactly like this, but just imagine here for a minute that you're standing in front of the church and your bride's coming down the aisle and you know as she's walking down, this woman's going to be unfaithful to me. She's going to make promises to me right here that she's not going to keep. Would you tell your parents about that before you got married? Or your friends? God has, God has told you what's going to happen. God called Hosea to love Gomer. He called, her to, he called him to rescue her. All of that's a parallel to the love that God has for Israel. One of my hopes for this study of Hosea is that every husband and every wife in this room will take Hosea as a model for how they love their spouse. See, it is not out of God's good plans that a marriage that has been firebombed by adultery or indifference or drifting or coldness, it is not out of God's good plans that that marriage can be and ought to be rescued and restored. This is the love that is set before us. 
that we'll consider over the weeks that are to come. That's the prophet, as much as we know about him. This is his marriage. How much more do we need to know about him? Well, let's talk about his book. Uh, Take that yellow sheet. If you're following along here, look on the back of that yellow sheet that's in your bulletin, and there is a chart there of the book of Hosea. I try to give these to you when we start new books. Some of you have have, um, collected them over the years. They taught us in seminary when we were preaching and teaching through the Bible that we should be very careful not to talk about a, a, the Bible in such a way that discourages people from reading it. That we're, we're supposed to talk about the Bible so that you want to explore it more and more. Don't, don't talk about the Bible as if some mysterious, unattainable book. That's, I think that's very important. But I'm, I want to speak frankly to you for a minute. I find reading the prophets sometimes really hard. Um... I struggle sometimes to read them. Um, it's, it's so much easier to move through the New Testament. I, I can follow Paul's line of thought as he's going through the book of Ephesians. I can follow, oh, this paragraph's over. We're going to a new paragraph, new topic. Here we go. I can follow easily through, more easily, through the book of Ephesians, through Timothy. I struggle with the prophets. Maybe it's because they're poetry, or maybe it's because uh, they're the cultural differences, but I struggle. Now, we have tons of resources, tons and tons of them, study Bibles and websites and commentaries, and um, I struggle. And I hate to tell you this, every commentary I've read thus far in the book of Hosea says that Hosea is the most difficult book in the Old Testament to put together. (laughs) In fact, some commentators just despair. They say, well, from chapters 1 through 3 we get Hosea's story, and 4 to 14, I don't know what's going on. It's just kind of a mishmash of Hosea saying something. That's not very helpful. Well, I borrowed what you see here from a commentator named Dwayne Garrett. He's a teacher at Bethel Seminary. Um, He proposed this, and I think it makes sense. Dwayne Garrett says that we should think not just about Hosea's relationship with Gomer, but Hosea's relationship with his three children as well. In fact, the three children kind of set the, the, the foundation for the rest of the book. If we think about the analogy, we have Hosea and Gomer are kind of like, he says, God's relationship with Israel's leaders, its kings, its prophets, its priests. Unfaithful they are. And then Hosea's relationship with his children is kind of like God's relationship with the common people, the farmers, the workers, the the slaves that are in Israel. And, and, and you can see how Gomer's relationship would affect her, her children or Gomer's decisions would affect her children. And you can see how the priests and kings and false prophets would affect the common people as well. And that, that, that relationship pervades or that, that concept pervades the book of Hosea. There's three children and he says in, verse, in chapter 4 through 7 we have indictment in threes. So things are set up in three. There's three great sins and three guilty groups and three warnings and three calls for repentance. Just like Hosea and Gomer or Hosea had three children. Then in chapters 8 through 14, what you see, and you'll be able to trace this in your Bible if you want to, is you can see these alternating proclamations. Hosea speaks, then Yahweh speaks. Hosea speaks, and Yahweh speaks. Your Bible should make this somewhat clear with quotation marks, or the translation will say, I, and you, and it'll speak about God. God will speak about the first person, in the first person, about himself, and uh, Hosea will speak about God in the third person. You can see those alternations. One of the reasons that that's there is to tell us why Hosea is a prophet, why he's qualified to be a prophet. 
How can, here's the question, how can someone with a wife like Hosea be qualified to speak for God? Oh, he can because God has a wife who is just as unfaithful as Hosea's wife. And both of these characters, God and Yahweh, speak in alternations. These spurned husbands both speak alternating through the last part of the book. That's an overview of the book, and I confess I have a fear over the next few months as we go through this book. My fear is that I'll lose some of this clarity as we, as we go through it, and I also fear that I'm going to repeat too often some of these themes that Hosea returns to over and over again. I understand now why I've never heard a sermon series from Hosea. <laughs> now, another question. If the book is so challenging then, why are we going to study it? Can't we do Ephesians again? I want to finish this morning by addressing three of the key themes of the book of Hosea. They're very simply stated, but Hosea fills these things in with deep and detailed um, content. So the first theme that we're going to look at in the book of Hosea is sin. A very simple word, sin. Sin, not just in Hosea and its badness, as if it's just merely doing bad things or being bad, but sin as it is appalling, sin as it is horrifying. Tom Constable summarizes it this way. See, the sin in Hosea is, first of all, a sin against light. It's a sin against light. Look with me at uh, Hosea chapter 8, verse 12. Hosea 8, 12. Look what God says. He says, I wrote for them the many things of my law, but they regarded them as something foreign. God says, I gave you the light of my word and you have turned from it. Or go back to Hosea 4, 1 and 2. Look what Hosea 4, 1 and 2 says. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no knowledge, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only, now this list should sound familiar to you a little bit. There's only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Does that sound like the Ten Commandments to you? A little bit? Hosea is reflecting on this. The Israelites are sinning against the light of God's good word. But in Hosea it's actually worse. Sin is worse. It's not only sin against light, but it's sin against love. This is what we learn from the image of Hosea's marriage The Israelites have taken all of God's good gifts and they've used them to satisfy their out-of-control desires. Hosea's wife became a prostitute. She was sleeping with men for money so that they would give her the things that she thought she needed to earn on her own when they actually had come from her husband. Sin is not just the breaking of rules of some distant judge, not some impartial removed authority in the heavens, Sin is treachery against someone who is close. It's someone who loves them, who, who is, has taught them. There's a difference between rebellion against a traffic camera. You know what that's like. Uh, it's happened to me. Takes your picture as you speed by. <laughs> the system sends you a ticket. There's a difference between rebellion against a traffic camera and treachery against your friend. The next time you watch a good show, television show or movie or something like that, where where there's treachery involved, 
Watch the look on the, 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 the face of the person who is betrayed. Watch to see what's in their eyes in that moment. That's sin. This is how Hosea is picturing sin. Now the second theme here is the theme of judgment. Judgment. Here's how God's, God responds. God's judgment is inevitable. There is no reason in the book of Hosea to look for or expect mercy. No one deserves it. This book is soaked in God's judgment. In fact, uh, there's images for judgment in this text that we're going to look at in, as time goes by. Um, how does God judge? First, he judges with weakness. He judges with weakness. Um, look at Hosea 5.12. Hosea is such, so imaginative. Uh, he uses such great images. Hosea 5.12. I'm like a moth to Ephraim. We'll talk about why he calls Israel Ephraim in a few minutes, in a few weeks. I'm like a moth to Ephraim, like rot to the people of Judah. Well, a moth. I'm like a moth that comes in and eats your clothes. I'm like rot that comes in and, and, and ruins the foundation of your house. He's going to make God's people weak. G. Campbell Morgan at this point in time wants us to think about God's people, the church, even now, and how effective and influential churches are, some, some in particular. Does anybody listen to what the Church of Jesus Christ has to say about anything? Do we have any sort of influence, really? Hmm. Weakness. Now, second, God judges with destruction. God judges with destruction. Weakness to destruction. Hosea 13, 7 to 8. Again, so great images. God's like moth. He's like rot. Uh, Hebrew, Hosea 13, 7 and 8. So I will be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lurk by the path. Like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and rip them open. Like a lion, I will devour them. A wild animal that will tear them apart. God's like a lion. He's like a bear. He's like a mother bear robbed of her cubs. Run! He's going to maul and destroy Israel. Again, you could think of churches that are just gone. It's, this is a story. Occasionally I read or hear a story. Not to be... Um, huh. Think about the Church of England. And it's just disappearing from the whole country. The country that produced Wilberforce and Charles Spurgeon and William Carey. And the church is just gone. Hmm. Third, here God judges by withdrawal. Withdrawal. Maybe chronologically that should come before destruction. But God's judgment. Hosea 5.6. We're going to go back to chapter 5. Hosea 5.6. Do you remember the great promise in the Old Testament that God had offered in the book of Joshua? How many times does he say it over and over again? I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. He says over and over again. And Hosea 5, 6, when they go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, they will not find them. He has withdrawn himself from them. He is not going to be there anymore. He's withdrawing. Judgment, this is a great second theme we're going to talk about. Now third, a final theme, the most important theme, love. Love. It's a great theme of Hosea. In fact, no one writes about love in the, book, in the Old Testament better than Hosea does. The unfailing love of God. Here, just a couple examples. Hosea 2.14. God's speaking about Israel here. He says, 
I'm now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. And that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. Or we'll skip to the end here, chapter 14, verse 4. Look at God's love. Hosea 14, 4. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily, like a cedar of Lebanon. He will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. I will love them freely. This generation that Hosea spoke to is finished unless they repent. And they're not going to. But they're God's people and he's not going to forget his love for them. It is suffering love and that God aches with them. It's refining love. He's going to punish them. It's rescuing love. He's going to come and and draw them back to himself. Brian Chappell writes about friends of his. They grew up in the church where he was a pastor a number of years ago. And uh, they have everything you would think a great suburbanite family would have. They have a wonderful house. They have great jobs. They have sweet kids. But the wife in this relationship has some mental and emotional problems. She periodically steals money from her family and gambles the money away. Uh, she's, over the years, been to counselors and doctors and pastors. Nothing has helped her permanently. Can you imagine what this would be like if your spouse um, steals things, takes family heirlooms and hawks them, and then goes and gambles the money away? Um, lies about it, goes, goes and takes money from bank accounts that they're not supposed to have access to, but they go and somehow wheedle the money out and just waste it. Every time, Brian Chappell says, that this woman has stolen from her husband, her family, ruined his future, he forgives her and invites her back into the house. One time, she was in such despair over what she'd done, she tried to take her life, and he went to the hospital and brought her home. Um, people have said to him over the years, this man, they, they, they've said, what, what, why do you keep bringing her home? His friends, his family have said to her, you should just forget her, let her go. And this is what he said to Brian Chappell about this. He said, she is a good mother most of the time and my children need her. But more than that, they need to know the love of their God. How can they know of a father in heaven who forgives them if their own father won't forgive their own mother? How indeed. Let's read this book as husbands and wives and parents. Let's read it for unflinching love. You can see how this book prepares us for Jesus, can't you? Can you see how that does this? Sometimes I fear when I talk about his death on the cross, sometimes I just talk about it as a transaction, as just an exchange. He died the death for us that we should have died. He paid the penalty for us on the cross in our place. He bore God's wrath. He rose again from the dead. And sometimes I fear that I don't talk about it as much as a transaction of, of love. This is... What Jesus did for us on the cross is not like taking quarters to the bank and getting bills. It's not that sort of an exchange. He came for the sake of love. 
as a demonstration of how God loves his people. There's forgiveness to be found. There's love to be had for all who receive it by faith in Jesus Christ. And it's a story of great, great love. Hosea 11, Christina read it. How can I give you up? God says, my heart is charged within me. My compassion is aroused. God almost, he's a cuckolded husband and he sounds like a sappy teenager. How can that be? Don't you want to learn how to love your spouse like that? Your child? So this is where we're headed in the weeks to come. Read Hosea. You can read the whole thing in 35 minutes, I bet, or so. Um, your mind will, be wand- it will wander sometimes. It will be tough. But remember, if you want leaves, all you have to do is rake. We're after diamonds. We're going to dig. Right? May God be merciful to us. May God write the eternal truths of his wonderful word on all of our hearts. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we come before you this morning with this prophecy of Hosea open before us. And uh, by your will, in the next few weeks, we will be digging into this book. How, we thankful, how, how thankful we are to you for it. It is um, profitable for us. It teaches, corrects, admonishes, rebukes, directs, enlightens, challenges, stretches us. May it also encourage and give us strength. Thank you for this good book. Do your work in us through it. Your word does not go forth vain. We believe that. We exalt in it. We give ourselves over to it. So show us kindness. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.